um, the vocal cavity, the teeth, the, the tongue, the voice box, the way we do. Uh, and this has been also studied that uh, the only reasons that humans were able to develop this is they had to first develop bipedalism. Uh, a biologist by the name of John Morley has become a good friend of ours. Uh, he made a study of this as well, uh, found other um, scientists who had, who had uh, uh, published this, that it was the fact that human beings became bipedal that allowed us to evolve the, um, the apparatus, the apparati that we use to articulate our language. And that's one of the most interesting things about this, these uh, articulations is that they are articulated in exactly the, with the same apparatus that we have, because they're exactly the same, except for they're doing it both on the pant and on the exhale. Did that kind of answer your question? Yeah, no, that answered the question here. Next question here uh, from David. Do you use something other than the IPA symbols to illustrate the utterances? Yes, I, I, in, uh, again, in, uh, what he means is the International Phonetic Alphabet. I, right from the start, I chose not to use that because the reason that I was <laughs> even got involved in this is because I wanted to learn more. Um, I wanted to have more of this so that I could demonstrate that whatever this creature is, it's producing a language. It has a language. And um, so I created the, the Sasquatch phonetic alphabet, which you have a copy of, uh, which uh, you have the latest revision of that. And by the way, I, it's due for another revision because of things we've found. Um, I, I created the Sasquatch phonetic alphabet based on uh, really the NATO phonetic alphabet with a bunch of sounds thrown in that, that humans don't, well, not that we, we're not capable of making them, we just don't do them often. Uh, things like um, tooth pops and tongue clicks. Thing, and uh, things like this. I, I included those in the phonetics, the Sasquatch phonetic alphabet. Um, but one of the main, and I get this question a lot, and I get it from uh, academics who are pretty uh, snooty about it. Well, why didn't you just use the IPA? Well, because anybody that's ever tried to use the IPA knows that it is notoriously difficult to understand. I created the Sasquatch phonetic alphabet for field researchers. And right in the SPA, there's a big section on, this is what I'm asking you to do when you're out there. If, even if you're unable to collect these things on tape, try, and if you hear a morphine stream, try to remember what it is, try to remember what it was, what it sounded like, and write it down using the Sasquatch phonetic alphabet, the SPA, I call it. Um, so that's the, the, uh, the easy answer to that question is why did I not use the IPA? Now, hey, I don't care in, future, in the future what 
linguistics specialists want to take any of these sounds and transcribe them according to the IPA, or even take my transcriptions and turn them over to, into the IPA. Um, but what good that will do anyone, I don't know. Okay, Scott, do you want me to go ahead and show that slide of the uh, SPA? Well, you can show the SPA. It might, yeah, if you want to show it down, if you want to show down further where it shows the actual um, uh, transcription key. Okay, let me get this. That, that might be. Can you see yeah, my screen okay? Transcription key. Okay, let me, let me move it around here and widen the view here. Okay. Tell me how low you want me to go. I'll keep going. That's the last thing on there, I think. Okay, there we go. Yeah, there you go. That's, that shows, that's the alphabet right there. And that shows, for instance, uh, just a capital, what we would call an A, but it's an A, A as in can, okay? The one above that, ah, as in father and so on down throughout the whole, throughout the whole alphabet to include sounds that are uh, compound phonemes. Then of course, every uh, transcription has to have an abbreviation key. And by the way, uh, the, these transcripts are trans transcribed according to military standards of procedure. Oh, there you have this. There you have a. Uh, there now you're showing the very first part of the Barry Moorhead or on the the Al Barry tape, and I could kind of read some of these off. Yeah, please do. First, you hear the the the, the whistles, and you've got the transcription key there with the W, okay, and then you have Ramho Baruchahu Vamvo. Let's see, Vamvo. Uh, no Here you can see, you see the who on the end that you asked me about before? Those terminal expressions? Right. You said uh, Dave was coming up with? The percussive huffs, he calls them. Yes. Then it goes, no plamentichu, narla, nagoku step gakoblim, okudja, frappe hukle. Unikuogo wa? I don't know. Mui fuiko. Let's see. Piko. Let's see. Kuonuk. Plenduch. Plenduch tish. Si jau glopumech. Paki hoku dutu sexy. Now, Scott, these sounds that you're doing impressions of, for lack of a better uh, yes. term, you're yes. not doing the inhale or, or what you're calling. Oh no, the no, 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 oh, but no. No, that, that would be impossible for me. So, yes, okay. I, I have actually taken this exact page that you have here, taken it out there at the Sierra camp, crawled up under the big giant boulders that we think those creatures were coming from, and shouted this out. Now. When you listen to it on the tape, which you just have, it's much faster, much faster. So uh, to, to those creatures that were articulating this, this must sound like a, uh, a child 
or some or someone who is mentally slow actually <laughs> trying right trying to duplicate these sounds yeah and in you in your opinion too i've heard you speak about this before were there is there any evidence in the recordings of them trying to slow down their language to speak to ron so he could understand them? yes Yes, okay. not not in this tape, not in the Barry tape. I couldn't find anything because I've gone back and forth and back and forth. And in the Barry tape, which is what we're looking at here, and that in fact what we're li listening to, what I had on the transcription program, um, there's nothing in the Barry tape that tells me that they were trying to communicate with the uh, humans at all. It was all about they were speaking to each other. Well, I, I, wait, I have to qualify that. Where I think they were communicate with the humans is where the big male goes off and just starts screaming at them. And, uh, and not with language, but with very, very intimidating uh, vocalizations. And I could, uh, Ron played part of that, but if you see it all, how it takes place from one point mm -hmm. to the next, it's really, really scary. And if, I swear, sure. if I'd have been up there, I'd be dead because I would have <laughs> ran off the nearest cliff. Yeah, there's a really famous part of the tapes where, where it's almost like this. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, yeah, is that is there language within that sound? No, uh, no, no. There's, no. there are a couple of little, um, uh, little phonemes, but most of it's not. Most of it's snarling and growling and. And what we would call ululation. In linguistics, that would be called ululation. Like, like that. Um, but nothing, uh, again, to answer your question, nothing at all that would that tells me that they were trying to, to uh, speak language to the humans. On Ron's, Ron's tape is very different. And he played you some of those. Where the where the uh, the being is going, um, very much slower. In fact, not not um, uh, uttering, creating utterance on the pant at all. It was all on the exhale, as if they were even trying to uh, mimic uh, the fashion. The, the method in which we humans speak by inhaling in and then uttering out. There's, uh, you've got one of the creatures on Ronstadt going, uh, she's the female who is farther away from the mic at this point. She's going, wacko. And then you hear the big male go, wacko. Um, now you said female. How do we yeah, know that as it, someone yeah. who's a linguistics expert, expert, what is happening vocally for you to say that? That she's a female? Yeah. The, the same way I could tell you if, if you were listening to a female in the other room. You don't have to be a, a sound expert to know that it's a female talking in the other room unless it's a, a guy who can very well mimic a female. <laughs> right, right, right. No, you don't have to. No, th this is, um, I mean, there's yeah. Nothing, sure there's nothing in your training. Spectrometer or something and tell you, oh, yeah, this is a higher spectrum. But right. he still could not scientifically say, oh, that's a female. 
So there's but nothing happening obvious. vocally for you to say for certain with your training that this is a female and this is a male. Yes. Okay. That was the question. And by the way, the, go ahead. By the way, the Russians and the Persians, or the Iranians, in my day at least, uh, they used just as many female radio operators as they used male operators. Can you give an example of a ululation with your computer program to show the difference between well, a morphine stream and a ululation? Do you have that ready? Yeah, let me uh, get it back here. Do you want to look at it? Yeah. Let me give it to you. Okay. Yeah, we're almost here at one point to where they are. And I'll back it up a little bit to where I can see. Uh, I got to make sure my my uh, my my uh, speaker here turns off if it's not you know being prompted all the time. All right, right here's where he starts. Uh, you hear him go. Okay, Sky, it's almost like it's buffering. Oh, it needs a minute. Let's try this. I think this might do it. Okay, let's try this. Let's try this. Now, here's an exchange. Now, that spot there, you should have been able to tell that that was a female and a male going back and forth. I will go back here again. Uh, where it is? There he is, right here. Try it again. You should have been able to tell the difference between that female and the male arguing about something. Of course, we don't know if they're arguing or if that's just the way they talk. But they sound like a, an old married couple. <laughs> on each other uh it, vocally i mean now here's a spot a very good spot that i like to use because it's it's uh to demonstrate the methodology here real time See, this is very clearly an articulated uh, language that has syntax. Oh, in fact, all language does. Very clearly, there's no reason in the world for any creature to be making these sounds if not for linguistic communication. Now, I will go over here. And you wanted to find some of the real scary ululation stuff. Let me put it back to real real time again. Pretty, yeah. <laughs> 
He builds himself into a rage. There's your there's part of the ululation. Get through some of this dead air. Now that's the humans. That's part of the other reason we know that I knew it wasn't fake. You can't fake that. Uh, taping humans and Sierra beings. Uh, vocally stepping on each other. Okay, Piggy, here comes some tips. What does it sound like it was coming from? This direction. Now that's them. They, they, they didn't know they were oh, getting my. all of that. So they wanted to put the microphone back up closer to where they thought the, the sounds were coming from. But then they didn't immediately go back into the to the lean-to, so the big one starts getting mad. Okay, Scott, that they, was the food that they were they, moving, they, they not the microphone. Vocal footprint and that of the uh, Sierra being. That's still humans. Here we go. That's where he starts getting mad. He's he's building himself up into that rage. Here he goes. You hear that that uh, terminal utterance? They're not going back into the tent yet. Finally, he just gets, he loses his temper. Here he goes. Almost like she was telling him, uh, you know, hey, here's these nice little uh, hairless apes giving us some food. So why don't you just mellow out so we can go get the food? Your volume's breaking out just a little bit here. You're not as clear as you were. I can still hear you, but um, see if we can get your now? mic. I mean, I didn't do nothing to the volume. Okay. Um, let's see. It's a little bit weaker here. Um, maybe look at it while I'm asking you some questions here, Scott. Um, someone had a question about Tibetan throat singers as far as they're doing a pant 
inhale on their Tibetan throat singing. Is there any similarities between what you found and Tibetan throat singers? Uh, you'll have to ask me that question again. The Tibetan throat singers, any similarities? Oh, oh. oh. Uh, I know what you're talking about. They, uh, <laughs> they seem to produce sounds that are unnatural for humans. They, if you're talking about the ones that they go very, very down deep. Yes, they, they do um, create some sounds that, that are uh, almost unhuman. But would they be able to do anything like this? There's no, no, of course not. Okay, Ron, and you are talking about uh, Thinker Thunker uh, basically agreeing with what Scott's saying here, but doubling up on it. And he put forth some evidence that uh, in your sounds, he's found evidence that they're using more than one vocal cord in order to make this sound. Is that what you were yeah, saying? Well, he didn't say that. I had somebody else say that. Uh, Thinker Thunker says they do um, five octaves in one tone. Okay. Which uh, the most any human can do is three octaves in one tone. You can do all five octaves, but not in the same tone. Mm -hmm. He's found, he did a 20 minute segment on that. It can be found in the Thinker Thunker or Slice Sierra Sounds. It's quite, quite interesting uh, to, to hear his uh, an, uh, analysis of this because mm -hmm. if I can just get it established by some uh, uh, university or some place with tackle of an engineer somewhere and give a uh, statement on that one way or the other. I just need to know whether I can use it as credible as much as I, well, we don't know. Um, he, he did, anyway, just have to look at everything about throat singers though, getting back to that. I that suggested to me years ago, and I started listening to throat singers. They are unique. That's a trained, that's a trained attribute that they, they uh, have to dig out mm -hmm. and use, but it's quite quite interesting. But it's nothing like what these things are making, sounds these are making. But it okay. does travel over long distances. Uh, another question here for Scott. Uh, this is from Jay again. Scott was almost able to reproduce this language. Could you theorize that this is human, a lost language or lost tribe, Homo sapien sounds? Just curious. Um. Well, they could be Homo sapiens if if we uh, categorize them the same way we categorize ourselves as sapient, uh, because it's language that puts us over the top. Mm -hmm. um, now, if yeah, again, if we if we're going to um, uh, define these creatures by the same definition that we define ourselves, then we have to call them sapient. Mm -hmm. Now we could call them other thing. We could call them what Linnaeus first called them. Really, we could call them caveman, homo, homo, which means man, troglodytus, man that lives in the cave. And the, the guy that invented, you know, taxonomy, scientific taxonomy, even included them in our lineage. Um, other than that, I mean, my personal opinion is knowing that they have language, knowing that they articulated with by the same apparatus that we have, I have to categorize them for myself, not being a scientist. I have to categorize them as a giant, hairy, wild man. It's a cousin, a species. They, 
they have to be every bit as close to us as the Neanderthal was. And, and by the way, they're, you know, my good friends, the Ru Russian scientists, they believe that he is a remnant Neanderthal. Are we all? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> most of us, yes. I, we share DNA, right? Yes, yeah, one, one to three percent, something like that. Depends on yes. who you are. Maybe Ron, or, uh, Ron, Scott, I'll ask you too, and Ron, you can uh, chime in as well. Scott, you've used the Sierra sounds to elicit a sighting, haven't you? I'm sorry? You've used the Sierra sounds to elicit a sighting? Uh, no. No, I've, I've not used this Sierra sounds to elicit a sound. I've, I've gotten uh, vocal responses back, nothing linguistic. In fact, what I've gotten was, was uh, what I call a concession snarl. And I've got 12 of those. I got those in Missouri. I got them up on the Sierra camp. Um, well, those are the two places. Uh, Ron, you know where I got it over here in Missouri is where you went with me. Huh. To the, to the uh, I can't say the guy's name because he doesn't want me to say it, the, the farm. I was going to say his name, so I guess I won't say it either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not only because he doesn't want to be inundated. Uh, he was in. He was inundated by BFRO people, and he didn't want that anymore. Uh -huh. So he doesn't want me to say his name. But I got that response over there, and the concession snarl. What I, the reason I call it that, is because it's almost as if, if I could put myself in their mind. They're going, okay, these poor guys are really trying hard to uh, communicate with us. And, you know, they're not bad because they leave food out for us and they sing songs for us and they play a drum. So let's give them a little something. And I will hear this. It's like the, the huh that you're talking about before with a snarl that follows it up and trails off. And I've heard that 12 different times that I've, that I've documented down. What about names? Were there any names uh, ever mentioned or directed towards Ron or vice versa? Were there, was Ron's name ever used or Al Berry's name ever used in a, a no, uh No, but there are places where it really sounds like they are calling some one of the other ones a name. Uh, well, I mean, Ron, I mean, there was that time that I heard my name right after the, the next morning after I saved your life. <laughs> Remember that? Yes, I do. You had more than that happen, though. Yeah, that was right. That was right before we got up and saw the horses, you know, mm -hmm. up, the one upside down. Okay, wait now, hold on. You guys got it. We got to start. We got to go from the beginning here because we looked at the slide and I've heard bits and pieces of the story, but I haven't heard it all. So let people in on what happened that day or that weekend. Oh, gosh. Oh. <laughs> There's so many people. That all right, don't we, know we were trying to get up to the is. camp, Scott and I. I had a, a pack animal, which wasn't really a pack animal, but it was mine. I'd been feeding it all winter, so time to make it pay for itself um i was packing her i got a trail ready horse suppose i just bought a few weeks before that's supposed to be a good trail horse 
Maggie Scott Moe, my, my really good trail horse that I knew could make the trip up there. And uh, Scott got on her, I got on mine, and right off the bat, uh, we, we couldn't even make it up halfway. Uh, horses got spooked at different things. It could have been anything, you don't know, because he's all but Moe. Uh, Moe is the only one that had been up there before the one Scott was on. So he was out ahead of me a couple hundred yards probably, which I kind of regretted later when I had my horse <laughs> throw me in, eyes off, and sprung my wrist. Broke one of my reins on the, on the horse's bridle, so I was trying to manipulate the horse. Still, I had to load up the pack again because the mare went off the edge. It was a nightmare. Anyway, I got up there, finally got everything back together, and I was up there, uh, caught up with Scott, and he was up there, and Mo wouldn't go any further. She just frozen right there. I said, kicker, Scott, I can't stop. If I stop this horse, they're going to start thinking about it and head back down. <laughs> they didn't like what they were doing at all. But she wouldn't move. Sure enough, my horse started spinning around. Okay, I might as well jump off this sucker because he's fixing to throw me again. So I, I jumped off, landed where I wanted to land, uh, and uh, started walking back down to catch him because I knew they wouldn't go very far. I went down past those big rocks, you know, Scott, that where, yeah. where those are. And uh, <clears throat> he was, there he was standing down there. And, by then, my feet were really hurting because I'd, I'd taken This was getting late in the day already. Scott said, we're not going to make it. I said, I know we're not going to get to camp. We're going to stop somewhere and camp out on the way or else go back. So we decided, I think, kind of to go back. Scott, the horses go back, but they wouldn't go forward any. Something was, we don't know again what was spooking. It could have been anything, a mountain lion, a bear, whatever. But uh, it was a nightmare of a day. We, Scott saw me get back on my horse down there past those rocks <laughs> and I guess he just saw me up in the air and come back down <laughs> he didn't see the horse <laughs> and uh, I landed between a couple of boulders knocked the wind out of me I, oh man it hurt, it I'll, tell, I'll tell that part about uh, when I saved your life yeah that's when he saved my life because he was gonna leave me there <laughs> I, I'm bear bait if you leave me here Scott <laughs> anyway he helped me get my boots off and my you know I, I, I couldn't I just I was having trouble. Got one of my, uh, I think I got my walking boots on then, didn't I? So, uh, anyway, whatever. Got down to the bottom. <clears throat> I had a sprung wrist. So I couldn't even, I couldn't load the horses. I, I got I have to load it in the trailer, but I couldn't, I couldn't shift the, uh, the, uh, the gear shift on the truck because my wrist was still swollen. I don't know if you remember that or not. I thought it might be broken. It was so big. It was just sprung, found out. So anyway, Scott drove the trailer and the horses around to where my daughter was camped, and uh, and we camped out there, and I couldn't head back because I, I knew Scott was having an issue trying to pull that 26-foot horse trailer around of that big truck, and uh, I didn't want him to try that going down the hill, and I wasn't about to try it with my, my wrist the way it was, so I thought, we better just lay up here for a day or two. Anyway, from there, uh, Ron had a sighting the next morning. We found a trackway, but a lot of stuff happened that night. And uh, Scott, you'll, you can take it from there if you want to. Okay. So um, <clears throat> we'll skip over the part about where I saved his life, even though that's <laughs> my favorite part. But <laughs> actually, no, we won't, because what happened is I was above him on the trail. I saw him get thrown off the horse again. I mean, he got they that horse sent him 20 feet in the air. And from my perspective, he looked like he came down and hit those rocks. And I didn't hear a sound. And I'm going, Ron, Ron. So anyway, I got off of Mo. 
I make it back down where he is. Ron is not moving. He has landed between these two rocks and he is not moving. He's got busted ribs. He's got what we thought was a broken arm. And I'm going, and it's already starting to get dark. So I didn't see him even move. So I thought he was dead. So the way I saved his life is I just reached down. And I goes, Ron, if you're alive, stay here. I'll be back tomorrow. I'm going down for help. <laughs> no, you're not. And that's when his hand, suddenly he came alive and grabbed my arm and said, you're not leaving me up here alone. <laughs> so anyway, anyway, I got him down off that mountain. And um, the next morning, somehow we, get, we got him set up in the tent and he could hardly move. And um, that next morning, before the sun came up, um, I was starting to rouse and I'd sat up uh, on my sleeping bag on my side of the tent and just off, just uh, to where the mountain starts and the mountain, the cliff that goes up to the Sierra camp is right there, goes all the way up. Um, it couldn't have been 20 yards away from me. And there was a dirt road that the dirt road ran between our tent and the side of the mountain there. And I barely sit up and I hear this. Scott. I hear my name pronounced very clearly uh, by, a, by what I felt was a female voice. And I was, what the? Did you hear that, Ron? Russ, yeah, was, Ron says, did, did you see it? Because it, it, it wasn't light yet. Ron said, was that Rhonda? They were still on over it with the people camp, at least a couple miles away. There were no people there. Ron said, did you see any headlights? I said, no, there's no cars out there. There's nobody over here. He says, you're sure that wasn't Rhonda? I said, yeah, I'm sure. So anyway, um, we wait a few more minutes. The sun starts coming up. And I said, I'm going to go out. Ron couldn't move. I said, Ron, I'm going to go. I'm going to go check, you know, I'm going to go check the horses. And I no sooner opened the tent flap and stood out and stepped out is that I, uh, the horses were, what, what would you say, Ron, maybe uh, 40 yards away? Oh, 30? maybe 40, 40 feet. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, they were, they were picketed. They were picketed out on this line, not very far away from the tent. And the first thing I saw was the horse that I was on. The horse that I, at that moment, I had, I had credited that horse was saving my life up there the day before because Ron's horse did not help him. I saw Mo, my horse, laying on its back with all of its feet straight up in the air. And I goes, and the first thing, words out of my mouth was, oh my God, Ron, Mo is dead. And, and Ron says, what? Oh my God, what? And so Ron's trying to get up. And he looked like Quasimodo walking with his arms and his ribs. And he, we, he gets up and we walk over there. And, and the reason I thought that is because I grew up around horses up in the mountains uh, in Utah and Wyoming. And the only time I ever in my life saw a horse laying on its back with all four of its legs straight up in the air was when it had, had died and blo got bloated from death. 
and uh, was co a couple times I saw him that had been stuck in an irrigation ditch upside down and had died. So that's what I said to Ron. So me and Ron, you know, I help him to go over to the horses. First off, one of the horses, one of the horses uh, had been let off of the picket with something that had an opposable thumb because it had latches on it that required a thumb to remove the latch to let it off of its halter. So one of the horses was completely gone. And we got over there and saw Mo, and he, he was somehow had been picked up, turned upside down and lodged between two trees, one on its, on its hind end and one on its neck. So that it, I don't know how it could even breathe. We walked up to the horse. I still thought it was dead because in the way it was had been manipulated in between those trees, I thought it had been killed. And Ron, God, I don't know. He he decided to do this, but he he says no. It's I think he's still alive. And he grabs he grabbed Mo's halter and yanked on it, which I thought it was going to break the horse's neck anyway. And kept yanking on it. Finally, unlodged Mo, this horse from from that tree. He stood up, shook it off as if nothing had ever happened to him. Her. Of course, he had he had scrapes and bruises and cuts all over him from the previous day and whatever had done that to him that night. But that was one of the strangest things that, that I had ever seen. Well, Maddie, the pack horse, was the one that got turned loose, and she was she came back and was standing there watching us. She never ran off and got lost, you know. Just she was just standing there with her free as a bird. She could have went anywhere, but she didn't. She had been let loose. <clears throat> yeah, but why did she leave? I don't know. Strange night, but that wasn't all that happened. The next night, Rhonda moved her tent over next day. Rhonda and Wendy, and then I guess the next morning is when she saw the Bigfoot. Because we could, I had to lay up there a couple of days. I wasn't about to try to drive that truck back down the canyon, down the valley. So anyway, uh, that's when we've seen the disappearing trackway. Uh, things like that were going on. Uh, Scott thought he felt, well, I won't say what you thought you felt, but uh, oh, yeah. there's a lot of strange anomalies around these things. Not just that, but I mean, some lights. Uh, I see well, one of the questionnaires wanted me to expound on uh, what I meant by aliens <laughs> indoctrinating us. Or in, in... Yes, in fact, uh, uh, Toby, I saw one question on there about the cantaloupe that I, I insisted we bring a couple cantaloupes oh, yeah. up there. And um, mm, that's a good one. I forgot about that. Yeah. So we had those packed in. You know, Ron didn't like that idea because they're big and heavy. And I said, no, I'm going to give them as a treat. And of course, this is the first time I'd ever been up there or tried to make it up there. And um, so the first time Ron got thrown and the pack horse went uh, tumbling down the mountain, Ron had to go down and, uh, and, and recollect her and as much of our gear as he could. And you tell him what you found, Ron. Well, I found everything I could and brought her back up, tied her up. And Scott's still a couple of yards ahead of me. He don't know any of this has happened, I guess. 
at the time and I started repacking her as best as I could and, and tying her and everything like that. So I found, uh, I didn't find all the cantaloupes. So I found, I think two of them, there was four altogether, I think. Anyway, when later on, a few hours later, when we was heading back down, when all this other stuff started happening, uh, I found a cantaloupe, not where she spilled them, but over on the trail, one of those switchback trails, and it was eaten out. I mean, like, so I don't know. a bite of it. Well, it just, a bird, I, I thought, well, could a bird done this? It was cleaned out, just so cool. And uh, I should have took pictures of that, but I wasn't feeling like taking pictures of anything, much less that. I felt like killing a horse right there, actually. <laughs> that horse I paid a couple thousand dollars for, it just was nothing. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, it goes on from there. We just, it's, a, it's another night for another story let's go back to the moment where you saw the horse scott uh i remember a detail i think you you missed um regarding experimental rubber balls maybe bouncing around the woods i got that part right i'm sorry there's something to do with rubber balls the sounds of rubber balls being bounced around the woods at night oh the um, tether ball that you put on that stuff is what you saw about you put the feathers around it or something like i remember you heard that ball bouncing is that what you're talking about? I don't remember the the rubber ball. No, we I found some very very strange stuff. I found um, we st started finding things left on our picnic table. There were no humans around besides us, but we found some stuff. Uh, I still have it. Uh, there, for instance, there was a a little plush, not a plush toy, a little rubber toy whale, like a blue whale, a little rubber blue whale completely caked in mud, uh, I mean old dried mud that had been left on our picnic table uh, with, um, and a different morning, uh, two little toy soldiers. The comp they were all completely, I still have them, um, that were caked in old dirt, old dried dirt that were there. Interestingly, one of them, and see, I never even talked to Ron about much about this because I got to the point where I was not going to impose a lot of stuff on Ron because I was worried about him. Um, but one of, the, one of the little soldiers had a gun was shooting and the other one had a pair of binoculars and they were set up facing each other this i still have those that and it just gets yeah it got there's so much and by the way i have all of this down in my journals that i kept um it, it just it gets too bizarre and there comes a point, Toby, where you have to, you almost decide you're not, you don't want to talk about it because you're, you're certain that everybody's going to think you're nuts. In, in fact, the first, the first five years that me and Ron uh, began to present this study together, we would go out to conferences like yours up in Oregon. Um, and present the study, 
for the first five years, we actually had a verbal agreement. This is Ron. Uh, you know, are we going to talk about the weird stuff? At that time, we called it paranormal stuff or just the weirdness of it all. Uh, now we don't call it paranormal anymore. Um, but for the first five years that we would go and present up there or in Hanobia or Santa Cruz, other places that brought us out to talk about it, we had made a, a, an agreement that we were not going to talk about the weirdness. But then it just got to a point, probably about five, four or five years ago, well, we'd be up there on that mountain and we'd just say, you know, this is, we can't stop, we cannot not talk about it anymore, Ron, because it's, it, it's beginning to feel like we're lying by omission. And that's when we just, we decided, look, we're just going to, we're just going to tell the truth. Whatever the hell happens to us up there, whatever the hell happens to us, wherever we are, we're just going to start telling the truth because people think we're crazy anyway. So why not tell the truth? And so I think that's what we've done in the last five years. Ron, do you have anything to add to that? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a lot to the, the stories. Uh, well, up the to these stories that, you know, I've been doing this for 50 years almost, and it just uh, it goes on and on. I, uh, uh, I talk about it, and the time I think about it, I'll talk mm -hmm. about it. If somebody asks me, right. they need to ask me because I don't, I don't feel like anybody's ready for the answer unless they're ready to ask the question. Well, there's a part inside the documentary uh, that I'm going to turn my uh, gallery view on here. Uh, let's see what we got here. There we go. Um, regarding the documentary, The Hunted, the David Pilates documentary that you both are in, you talk in particular about seeing the lights. And Pilates turns to you around the campfire and says, is it embarrassing to talk about? And I think that's an important question that he asked. Um, there is a sense of pride and ego that gets in the way of the weirdness here. And I would think that first five years when you guys had an agreement, that must have slipped in. This is too nuts to talk about. We can't, we have to save face a little bit here. I mean, this is a whole new level of bizarre activity. You know, Toby, there's so much of this stuff being reported nowadays and has been for the last few years that... Uh, why not just tell what people what happened to me and what's been happening uh, and let it go with that i i'm i'm letting my ego go you know i don't you know, ego makes us human we are all have egos but there seems to be a competition in this mm -hmm. field of bigfootology here and uh i don't want to be part of that i just tell what is mm -hmm. and what i think and do what, what you want i'm 77 years old now i don't care people believe it or not it happened What's befuddling to me is a little bit is all these scientists, I think, want to believe me. They've never, to my knowledge, ever questioned any of the other hunters. And a couple of them are still alive. And why wouldn't they want some cooperation of what this is all about? I mean, they I'm the only one talking about this. The other guys just stay in the background. They don't want to, they don't, I mean, Warren Johnson, who passed away a few years ago, Al Berry passed away a few years ago. They're just, we're all passing on, you know, and and yet this is such a such a story it'd make one heck of a movie and i've been you know approached by several production companies but they all want to tell me what to say 
And I'm not going to have that. I've got to, I've got to tell my story. I've got to be the executive producer or I'm not going to go with it. And it pretty much wipes it out right there. But the story needs to be told and it needs to be told the way it is, the way it happened. Mm-hmm. My take on it is another, is another issue because some people just don't believe in quantum physics. I don't know how they can not believe that. They've got their head in the sand if they don't know what quantum physics is all about. I mean, they don't have to know what it's all about, but at least understand that it is how everything in the universe works. And there, all these people are still going by, oh, if you don't see it, it don't exist. Mm-hmm. If you can't measure it, it, it isn't there. Well, one of these guys tell me how far it is in the universe and, and come on, how, how small can small get? Uh, quantum physics is the answer to, to all these anomalies that are happening. And they're really just something we need to understand. And if you understand a little bit how quantum physics works, it's not that hard to get your head around. You never understand all of it, but you can, you know, how, do you, how do you explain time don't exist as we perceive it hmm? it doesn't <laughs> we're just living from day to day in a lineal timeline for time if you get out of this dimension it doesn't exist the same way how do you get past the thing that um it, nothing is real till it's observed mm-hmm. well that's a crazy thing to say how can anything not be real if you see it it's got to be real well what is happening with our eyes and our perception how's how's this stuff happening it's through quantum physics and it's how everything works. And these astronauts, these scientists, these physicists, they know this stuff, but it's hard to get the common main day, mainstream science and tune to this because so many people believe all that happening is what they can see, feel, and touch. With their Newtonian physics, they learned in the fifth grade. And that's too bad. They just need to expand themselves a little bit, open up out of the parameters and understand there's a bigger picture of this whole thing going on. With the UFO intervention uh, that's happening, uh, more and more Bigfoots are being seen. Uh, it, it's it's coming to a head. Something's going to give. And uh, well, I, I I was raised religiously. I'm not religious now, but we're all spiritual, whether we like it or not. Uh, so I know biblical scriptures, and there's one in Luke 17:35. I think and it says, "As it was in the days of Noah." This is one of the first things I ran across when I started studying Bible. I started studying where giants came from. Well, Christ said, as it was in the days of Noah, so it should also be in the second coming. Well, I want to find out, well, what was it like the days of Noah? That's when aliens were intervening in humanity, changing the genome, creating Nephilim, the giants. Okay, there's a giant for you in Genesis. You get into the book of Enoch, which is not canonized, but you can start studying all this stuff, and it's, stuff starts coming together for you. And it's a bigger picture as it was in the days of Noah, well, if that's happening, then UFOs are coming here now. There are going to be more and more. Aliens are going to offer us advanced technology, which you got to watch for because just be careful. There's a dark side out there. There's a good side, too. And we all have what they call guardian angels, if you have. But that may be the mind speak that you're hearing sometimes when you go to right instead of left. Uh, you got to pay attention to that. It's important to have your heart-mind coherent so that your brain is acting with a heart rhythm. And, and once you get that energy working in your behalf, you'll go the right way. So there. <laughs> it is Sunday. Come on, give me a break. <laughs> you know, the paranormal world has a lot of uh, branches on it. When you're looking down the, the scope at UFO activity and people that are invested into hauntings, and then you have the world of the cryptid, those three branches in particular come up over and over again. But as it relates to something called hitchhikers, I wonder if you're familiar with something following you back home. And I'll pose that question to Scott. After looking into this, 
do you find that the supernatural is approaching you as though it's seen you look at it? I, I saw that uh, question by Nancy there and I was, uh, uh, right away I came up with a real easy answer. Yes. No, but <laughs> uh, in a lot of ways, in a lot of strange ways. Of course, I live in Missouri. Um, I live on the, uh, the Missouri River Corridor and I'm quite sure that they, that they migrate seasonally up and down the Missouri River Corridor because uh, the Momo here, what we call them out here, the Missouri Monster, that name was given to them 100 years ago. And there are hundreds and hundreds of newspaper articles going back 100 years. They, um, I think it was, would and naturally, it would be natural for me to see phenomena out here, which I did once I got started on this, me and Stephen would go out in the woods and we'd have strange things happen and, and um, uh, different uh, vocalizations, nothing linguistic, by the way, again, but again, a couple of those concession snarls. Uh, but beyond that, just being out there in the woods and being squatchers, because Stevie loved doing it so much. Um, I, I lived in a house in uh, Lone Jack, Missouri that, that butted up against a huge area of forest, a conservation area actually. Um, and I had uh, red foxes out there. I had some bird feeders out there. I loved the birds, the big uh, uh, um, uh, woodpeckers that would come and stuff. So anyway, I would leave, I had a rock out there in the back that I would leave food. Any, I didn't feel like throwing food away when I could take it out there and give it to the foxes or the coyotes. So I started leaving food out on this rock. And me and the kids, we just called it the, the food rock. So go give it to the, the food rock, you know? And, um, you know, me and Ron had been doing this for, but I never, I never imagined anything other than foxes or coyotes coming up. Um, I suspected that there were uh, Sasquatch beings around, um, but not at my house. And then I started finding a particular type of little rock and it would always be laid. And I know coyotes are not doing this. I know red foxes are not doing this. And they would all be, they would be of a different color each time. Sometimes they would be a pinkish color, but they would be almost a complete sphere, a little circle, maybe a little flattened sphere, but completely smooth, like it had come from the bottom of a stream of some sort, which I had no real streams going past my house. Something was leaving, um, and I have almost all of them. One of my ex-girlfriends took a couple of them, but uh, I have, a, I have uh, some of them and they're varying in size from all of them fairly big, from about that big to, you know, three inches in diameter. And they were all laying either on top or very close to this uh, 
this, what we call it, the giving rock, because we were given food to, to the animals. That was one thing that I, that I cannot explain. I don't think it was coyotes. I got one. Go ahead, go for it. <laughs> well, I think I've talked about this before, but up at the camp, uh, one evening when these beans were around, after we all settled in the shelter, I say it's all, there's three of us up there, Bill McDowell and, and Lewis Johnson and myself, and we were bedded down inside the shelter. We heard this clicking noise out by the stove, sound like a rhythmic clicking, and didn't know what to think about it, but it kept moving up towards our shelter, which is probably what, maybe what, 30, 40 feet away. And uh, as it got real close to the shelter, it, all of a sudden it was inside the shelter, a clicking, clicking sound. We turn our lights and it stops immediately. Turn the lights off and it start, starts again. This went on for quite a while. And anyway, later, uh, all of a sudden stopped. But later down in the valley, I was out at my pasture irrigating and uh, I heard this clicking sound, the same sound, like castanets. And I looked around for it and I couldn't find it. And I couldn't find the source of it, but it just kept clicking. And uh, I asked Bill about the years, so a few years later, I asked him, Bill, did you ever have anything happen to you uh, at home? Because I've had, you know, pounding on my house and stuff like that, my ranch house and stuff like that. But this was a definite daytime if something went on. He said, yeah, remember that clicking sound we had at the, uh, at the uh, camp up there? I said, yeah. He says, I had that uh, in my... Uh, place it down where he lived in the valley and follow him so it's like whatever it was we don't know what it was but it was it had come to us again at our homes and uh, i've heard a lot of people report about these things messing with you at night i call it the witching hour during the night generally it's when it happens but these were the daytime and uh it's just uh interesting stuff because the witching hour is when the uh our, our frequency lowers our bodily frequency when we start to go into the alpha theta state of sleep awareness and get into a, almost a dream state. Uh, I think that's when the Earth's frequency also lowers, according to the uh, uh, human residence. By the way, that just went off the charts here again recently. Anybody read that? It's kind of something to watch for. Uh, same time as much of those we're seeing too. Anyway, let me. I'm rattling on here, but. Uh, what I'm getting at is, yes, they, they once they get into you, and once they're interdimensional, I believe, they can go from the third dimension into the fifth. We see them in the plasma state of the fourth dimension of time. That's when they're seen as cloaking. Uh, I get my woo-woo stuff going on, but it's just quantum physics. And uh, <laughs> it's how things can really work and the science behind it. Al Berry told me one time, he says, whatever you do, stay with science. Don't talk about the woo-woo stuff. So I try to stay with science and I got into quantum physics. I asked a couple of guys years and years ago, professors that I knew, uh, what do you think about quantum physics? And because I believed in the Bigfoot, but it hadn't been proven yet. They said, don't even talk to me about quantum physics. You know, you can't get a body, bring it in and let's cut apart. It's not going to exist. So that's unfortunate. We don't have academia on board with this. Even when you got Dr. Curlin's report saying those tapes are genuine, and I'm sure Scott wouldn't even probably try to the tackle him if he had known the, the credibility of the actual tapes for themselves were not manipulated, were not speeded up, not slowed down, not anything done. Yet you get academia that still won't won't tackle it. They're afraid of their tenure, maybe, maybe afraid of not getting the funds for the next project they want to do. They can't lose credibility within their community of uh, golfers. <laughs> it's just, 
Hey, same. Toby, I just thought of something very, very weird that uh, you, you mentioned <laughs> synchronicity before. If you don't, I don't mean to butt in on you, uh, Ron. Oh, go but, ahead. I'm just rattling. But um, here I was doing this with Ron for, I, I, we'd been doing this for about five years and uh, at Wentworth College where I taught um, for many years, they were putting up a new uh, display case of old alumni, right? And so I'm, I was interested in that, some good old pictures of alumni and I'll be damned if they didn't put up a picture of Marlon Perkins. Hmm. And I said, and they even put up a thing that a little thing that said the thing, and the people that were doing this had no idea that I was involved in this research. They even put up a little plaque in front of this picture of Marlon Perkins. I don't know if you guys know who Marlon Perkins is. Mutual of Omaha. Yeah, <laughs> but he he was the first guy to go on national TV with his own show about wildlife and um and i didn't even notice about him uh but on this little plaque it said he was a he sa said he was the first guy to have a wildlife show um well the wild kingdom mutual of omaha's wild kingdom right and then on this plaque it says he was also involved in the first expedition into the himalayas in search for the abominable snowman this I got something going. <laughs> I got the rest of the story to get through. <laughs> this was a, I had no clue. I mean, I'd loved Wild Kingdom, but I had no clue that he had been, uh, had done that. But then after that, of course, I had bragging rights that all of my crazy stuff, I'm just following in the footsteps of the Wentworth footsteps of Marlon Perkins, right? Who had graduated from the, the college that I was teaching at. Really? Oh, I didn't know that part. Yes. Peter Byrne, who most of us know that name, who I brought up in my presentation earlier, uh, he was really the first guy on the Tom Slick expedition to go over there and start investigating the Yeti, the abominable snowman. Yeah. And the big deal was the finger, the hand, supposedly from a Yeti, all yeah. guarded by the Sherpas up there. And he, he actually got the Sherpa drunk one night and, and replaced one of the fingers of the Yeti with a human finger. And when Perkins went in there years later to check all this out, he found the human finger and said, well, this is a human, human, it's not. Anyway, he snuck it out, <laughs> Peter did. <clears throat> I don't know if I should tell this story or not because it's kind of funny, but it's real. And uh, he snuck it out in uh, Jimmy Stewart's wife's lingerie because they were good friends, Jimmy Stewart and Peter Byrne. And uh, anyway, it ended up over in Europe someplace. It's gotten lost somehow because no one knew about DNA in those days. This is in the 50s, you know, so 50s, 60s, right in there when Peter was doing the safaris over in the uh, Nepal. So there's the rest of Now you've heard the rest of the story. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that brings it to Marlon Perkins and that the Mitch of Omaha episode where they said it was a phony because they found the human finger in there. <laughs> uh, Scott, has uh, 
has Ron's investigation into the supernatural, into the world of quantum physics, moved your research forward? Um, you want to pin me, Scott? Go ahead. No, no, no. Well, uh, not linguistically, not linguistically, but see, Ron and I, Ron and I were of the same mind from the very beginning. I mean, our first trips up there, of course, you know, you don't have much to do up there on the average day other than to sit and philosophize. And that's been my mindset, you know, for my whole life. So, uh, oh, we always talked about, you know, what could be happening. Um, you know, and we talked about quantum physics. We had both studied it. I teach, I I teach uh, a, a, a whole unit, and even to this day, I teach a unit in the philosophy of science in my intro to philosophy class. And I spend a lot of time about, about uh, quantum physics because it's the only place you're going to get any of it is in a philosophy class. They won't teach it in the biology class or even in the physics class. So you, the only place that will describe to you the implications of quantum physics is in a philosophy class, because it's been left up to us philosophers um, to define the, the implications, because the scientists don't want to touch it. So yes, we've had a lot in common there, but linguistically, that it doesn't doesn't have much to do with the linguistics of it all. Are we even asking the right questions, guys? Because so much of this oh. is, and it's indicative of knowing what we're dealing with here. We don't really know what we're dealing. So how do we ask the right questions? Do you guys fi find yourself, uh, I don't know, in debate with your own conscious mind about how to deal with this and how to approach it differently? That in itself is a good question. Good. I probably heard it from Ron, but <laughs> the answer is that Scott. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it can, it has to go further than just understanding morphine streams and phonemes. I mean, the fact is, is that we we have a culture here. Would you would you agree, Scott, that there's a culture present within that language? That culture, uh, yes, culture. Uh, the definition of culture is that you have something, some talent, some. Uh, some practice that you pass on to the next generation. That is the definition of culture. And I've, I've, I've been, uh, I've been challenged by, again, uh, academia, academics saying that, well, if they're so smart, if they have language, then why don't they have culture? I said, they do. They have language. Language itself is, is indicative of culture because what these other academics are talking about is, well, why don't they make fire? Why don't they build houses? Why don't they? They're talking about material culture. But there's so much of what humans do and. Uh, humans are screwing this earth up. <laughs> These things uh, aren't. Yeah, there's so much to culture other than just, uh, you know, physical culture, material culture. That's what these guys mean by culture. Mm -hmm. But no, language itself is culture. Absolutely, they have culture. If they are, if they are interdimensional, 
which I believe them to be because of their frequency they can reach, I think. And it's often a woo-woo camp. Sorry about that, folks, but that's that's quantum physics. You can change the mass to energy through frequency vibration, uh, get into that stuff, and it's that's why you're not going to see a fire. They don't need a fire. They don't need a car to get around. They don't need uh, they don't need our anything we got. People used to say, well, we've got to protect them. Let's shoot one so we can protect them. That's ridiculous. That's the stupidest thing. You know, I've never been into that. And I think we weren't into that when we was up there unless we had to protect ourselves. That's the only reason we, we carried the guns because of other elements too. Mm -hmm. A lot of things up there can get caught up in the Sierra area there. It's just, mm -hmm. I mean, I've got a hat band made out of a 52 inch rattlesnake we shot on the trail. <laughs> that gets your attention. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, uh, it's just, uh, well, where was I going with all that? I don't know. But well, let me ask you this, Ron, regarding, you know, the 40 plus years of you looking into this and Scott, are there any examples of a language existing in a culture that doesn't have religion? And if so, um, can we speculate about spirituality? I, I, I use the word religion, but spirituality, let's stick with that. I would think I that every language would have a culture would have some kind of spiritual core believe in something greater than themselves. Has that question been asked? May, Ron, may I answer that quickly and then that you take that? Okay. Um, we know. Uh, we know that human beings have had language for at least uh, most linguists will say at least 150,000 years spoken language the way we speak it now. Um, of course, it took much longer to come up with the written language and things like that. But um, we and I believe that uh, we've had, in fact, there's archaeological evidence that we've had religion for even longer than that, because there's evidence that the Neanderthals had been buried with some ritual, that Lucy had been buried with some ritual. That's going back a couple million years, right? But certainly, I believe, and, uh, and I've, there's a lot of evidence that I've read, uh, published, that that's, will state that we have had religion ever since we were able to ask the questions. Ever since we had language, certainly we began, as soon as we had the ability to ask the questions, we began asking the questions. How did all this happen? Who made this? It's gotta be a natural thing for us. So I, so I personally, I believe that yes, um, once we become sapient or sentient, we began asking the questions and we, adopted religion or at least spirituality as ron would say <laughs> ron well i think we're all spiritual we're all energy i said right. this earlier at the most minute part of our existence we're energy vibrating at different frequencies that energy can't die it passes on that's true with any animal any any body we are unique in the fact that we are humans and we're made in the image of okay, i'm gonna say it god whatever that is but we're made we're, i think the troglodytes did evolve like darwinism says so it does not explain our consciousness it does not explain 
telekinesis, not explain some of the attributes that we seem to have that Bigfoot might have. He's a little bit more advanced than we are. Uh, some of that may be involved. Some of it may just be inherited by their creator, whoever did that. Uh, but there's a bigger picture to all this stuff. And uh, spirituality, yes, these things, if they can go from the third dimension and exist in the fifth dimension, <clears throat> they are they're not, they're not involved in time like we are unless they're in our three-dimensional environment, then they're subject to our three-dimensional rules and laws. They can be shot, they can be, things can happen to them, but they can also change their frequency vibration to go out of our perception into the fifth dimension. You see them sometimes cloaking the plasma field of the fourth dimension of time. That's where the ghosts are seen. That's where a lot of things are seen. It depends on the temperature. That's why a lot of things happen during the witching hour of the nighttime, because that's when the residents of the earth changes. That's when we change. That's when things can happen. Spirituality, yes. They are spiritual beings, just like we are. Okay. Real quick here, Ron, regarding proof, uh, scientific proof. Uh, what do you think of scientific proof of actually bringing in a, a, a body of a being? Where are you at with that? I don't think it's going to happen unless it happens by accident. <clears throat> but even when it does, supposedly, like uh, Glenn Beck did, he shot one point blank uh, at their uh, Mount St. Helens in 1924, supposedly. And they never could get the body. Uh, a lot of people say they've shot him. They're going to find a body. I'm not sure it's ever going to happen because if they are what I think they could be, and that's I mean, interdimensional, uh, they have an attribute that we got to get a hold of and uh, understand it. I don't think you're ever going to prove it by a body on it, or you could if you had a body on a table. If that happens, great. There could be some that are just relic hominids that have been here for eons and evolved way past what, what I think we are right now. Um, but there's also what I call the dilution factor, where some of them crossbred with natives, indigenous people, and they have diluted themselves down into more human-like qualities, which means they're more human-like than others. What I dealt with, what we dealt with up in the Sierra Nevadas, I think we're, we're not diluted down. These things are we're just different. Mm -hmm. I don't know that all of them can talk. I just don't think they're all the same. They're not of the same genome, even. Because if you believe in aliens, like I do, like get your head in the sand if you don't think, there's aliens out there if you don't think they've been visiting this earth this earth is a jewel we've got everything here we should be very happy we've been given dominion on this earth that's why they don't mess with us we are very chosen we're very special people so there's sunday again toby so forgive me <laughs> <You go. laughs> we're very special people we just don't realize if you realize who you are and don't bring the darkness in if you don't want some people that are, are the devil or they have demonic something like that don't even go there. Keep your your conscious level up to a higher vibration. Think of positive things and advance this world. Advance yourself. Get better. Uh, real quick here uh, to the audience with our last 10 minutes here. Uh, if you'd like to come on the air, uh, don't be shy. Come on the air. And all you got to do is raise your hand in the Q&A area. And I can flip on your microphone if you want to. You can speak directly with uh, the presenters here. Um, while people are mulling that over there. Scott, I remember a specific phrase that you mentioned back in 2010. I believe the phrase was Wicca save us. Not Wicca save us, we, but, um, oh gosh. Um, there was a phrase that I think you elicited from the Sierra Sounds, food high wire. That was it. Food high wire. And it had, uh, 
what you're calling, um, what is it when you utilize a word that's the same between another language? Cognate, a cognate expression. So would food be the cognate and Hawaii be the Squatchinese? That's an interesting thing because the, the morpheme, what we, what lay people would call a syllable or a word, we can't call any of them words because words are notoriously difficult to define. You have to have a dictionary to say, oh, there, that's an actual word. So we have to call them morphemes. Um, the word uh, or the morpheme food uh, was one that uh, was articulated twice in, in uh, the same ex- utterance exchange in the Berry tape and then once in uh, the Moorhead tape. Uh, the one in the Berry tape was when um, it seemed like the, the big male and the big female were arguing and the female says, said very, this is how I have it transcribed and it's very clear. She goes, me watch food, plain food. And you know, if, you have to be careful with this but you have to document it as well. That is a very good pigeon, meaning half English. That is a very good pigeon for, I'm watching the food and there's plenty of it. And then again, two years later, same place. Oh, and by the way, in the berry, when the berry tapes were, were um, recorded, the humans had never said the word food, not once. They were using the word dinner. They were saying, hey, Big E, come down and get some dinner. They never said the word food once. Yet this creature says it twice in one utterance. Mm-hmm. Then in the Moorhead tape, you have it, uh, one of them saying very clearly, and you can tell he's talking to Ron. He says, Food Hayabaya, Food Hayabaya, which phonetically is a perfect pigeon for do you have food? Huh. Hmm. Food Hayabaya, or food have ya. They could have been trying to say, food have you? Or do, you well, know? we used cooking food at that time for dinner. Had it on the stove. Yeah, see, I know that. That's, you have to, you have to, you, ha- you have to collect all of those, those elements at the same time to understand what's going on. Hey, I'm going to bring on uh, Jay since he was the first in, and he's like the Marine Corps, first in, last to leave. Uh, he wants to uh, talk to you guys here. So, Jay, you're up. Can you, can you hear us, Jay? Let me, uh, I think you might be on mute. So. There he is. Okay, there I am. There you are. Go ahead, Jay. How's it going, guys? Very well. Good to see you, Jay. <laughs> Here you are. You guys can see me? No, we can just see your name. You can just see the name. Good. Oh, there I am. There, Jay Bachosh. That's, that's how you say the name. Hey, I just wanted to thank both of you guys, um, both Ron and Scott. Um, I've learned a lot. So I've been listening to the Sierra sounds for a long time. And um, Scott, I thought you could almost imitate those things perfectly. It was really good. Um, but I just wanted to thank you very much. It was very educational. And um, I definitely appreciate your guys' time today of uh, doing this. Thank you, Jay. And uh, 
but he's got a film, you know, Finding Jay. Anybody wants to see how researcher researches, <laughs> Finding Jay is a good thing to see. <laughs> well, you on Amazon, Prime. I, I appreciate that, Ron. Um, I, well, I really do. I'm sorry, I still haven't seen the end of it, but I got to get to that point now where I see that smoke, looking like smoke going through there. I don't know if it's a campfire you had or if it's something else, but. Uh, well, I, well I, I can tell you that I did not have a campfire going, but it, when you get to it, um, look at the timestamp. I will. And, yeah, and I, just yeah, gotta I just got to go through it again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and definitely let me know. I know, uh, like like I told you before, it's a, it's a two-hour documentary, but, you know, you think that's long. Before the cutting room floor happened, it was longer than Avengers Endgame, and it was like <laughs> close to three hours. So I cut it down the best I could. Um, and I appreciate you watching that and, um, you know, and, and, and getting your opinion on that, because it's really important that I put the documentary out for the truth. And that's it. And you put anything on Amazon Prime, you know, you're not going to buy an island anytime soon. And that's OK, because I'm not about that. I'm about the truth. And the things that I have discovered in the uh, Kettle Moraine here in Wisconsin, I'm telling you, Ron, that's that's why. Um, just getting your book, the, the Quantum Bigfoot, is one of my favorite books because I saw the shimmer out there, but I don't know what it is. I'm mm -hmm. still like everybody else, just learning this, mm -hmm. and um, you know, just getting your guys' opinion. I've never really heard the vocals like you have out there, and um, or what Scott has said to send in. I do have like 52 seconds of what sounds like I don't know, like 30 coyotes, like a like a convoy going through that sounds very odd and scott you were saying that well you know, that's maybe... that's exactly what it sounds like to the uh to the non-expert ear if uh if you have that on tape i i do then uh that would be worth listening to especially if it's if it's if, if it's good uh, clear yep uh, loud enough to put on a transcription program i would do it in a heartbeat yeah, well, definitely, I, I will definitely get that over to you because here's what happened. I went out with uh, my nephew, who was more into aliens than he was Bigfoot, but you know what? We took him out anyway, and he got the idea of doing like a 10-minute a meditation while we're out there. I, I kind of felt funny about that because, um, you know, I, I just, that's just not my nature to do, but I thought I would try, and it's really bizarre because I don't know if I was hearing my own thoughts when I was doing that or if it was really them. I mean, just to give you an example, I was just asking a question in my head. I'm here. How many are you? And in my own voice, I heard, we are many. And it was weird that that type of answer came back. But this was about 30 seconds into the meditation, maybe a minute before all the coyotes just went crazy. I mean, it sounded like they were right next to us. And um, yeah, it was kind of a hair-raising moment. But yeah, I do have that. And I could definitely give that to, uh, to Ron. It will, and to, it will be easy to tell if it's if it's really coyotes or, or it could be Sasquatch sounding like coyotes. But it, it, it will be easy to tell <clears throat> if there's any language in it. Yeah, exactly. Because in the middle of it, when you usually hear them yipping, there was this really weird, quick, I don't know. You know, again, I'm not an Outback Jack. I'm not an animal expert on it. It just sounded odd to me in the middle of it. But I, I think it's at least worth taking a look at. And 
just let me know where you want me to send those to, and I'll be more than happy to do that. Send them to me, Jay. Okay. Forward it to me. Oh, okay, great. And then what I could do, Ron, maybe could I, uh, because it's a pretty big audio file, should I uh, Google Drive it to you or WeTransfer? I would go WeTransfer, Jay. That's never let me down. Okay. Yeah. And Ron, WeTransfer is just a file sharing option. You'll get an email from him, a, a data dump, and you'll have to upload it. But it, it's so flexible that anybody listening who's not using WeTransfer uh, to send all of your big audio files, you're missing out. Uh, it's super simple. And Scott, I would uh, recommend it to you as well. WeTransfer.com. Okay. Uh, no membership, nothing like that. Huge files. I mean, thousands of gigabytes. I, I put my IT guy in charge of all of that. Okay. <laughs> well, no, that, and that's good. It, so that's what I would like to do. Like I said, I don't get too much audio um, uh, or, or vocalizations out there. Maybe some odd things, but nothing that would resemble uh, anything captured in 2016 in the Kendall Moraine. There was one point where it sounded way off into the distance, and I wasn't able to record it, but it sounded like um, two Russian guys. Mm -hmm. in a conversation but it wasn't as loud as the sierra sounds obviously but it was uh i was like who is out here having a conversation you know so yeah i'll definitely get these to uh to you ron yeah if, it's, if it sounds like two russian guys i'd like to hear it mm -hmm. yeah well the the, the the it seemed like it was so far out into the distance that oh, okay. I, I i yeah and i use a an h1 zoom for my audio device, and I keep it right yeah. on my vest, try to get the best sound oh, I can. By the way, to everyone, I I can't, uh, I don't accept anything that has been altered in any way or uh, um, cleaned up, as they say. Right, like, like don't don't clean anything up before you send it to me. Gotcha. Yep, I'll send you the actual audio file to Ron, yeah. and then you guys can. And again, I I honestly, to me, I think they're coyotes, right? But I'm saying under the circumstances of what we were doing right then and there, uh, you know, doing that kind of that meditation, um, I, I, I don't know. Is it just an absolute coincidence? I don't know, but it's worth it. As soon as you said different sounds of coyotes, that sparked it. And I thought, hey, I'll send it over to you guys. You, you know, if it's coyotes, it's coyotes. If it's not, then we go to the next step. Cool. All right. Thank All you right. again, Jay. Well, thank you so much, guys, for uh, for this. I mean, I didn't mean to take up all the time. I don't know who else has questions or whatnot, but um, Ron, I love you, man, and you are a great guy. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, Jay. I appreciate that. Uh, thank you're you, man. Welcome. You're all welcome. Right. All right. Talk to you guys later. Thanks, Jay. Thanks. Well, unfortunately, we're at our, uh, at our hour here. We're coming to a close. Uh, Ron Moorhead, thank you again. Uh, for providing an afternoon for all your fans. Scott, thank you for providing an afternoon for all your fans. I think that something's going to erupt out of this before, uh, you know, I I knew that the Sasquatch language conversation had kind of fallen short, way more short than I was hoping for, but I, I really want to help reawaken this. So my question to you, Scott, is before you leave, is we need to get the... Uh, the language paper back out on the internet in a form to where people are looking at it again and diving in. Is that something that I can post and start advertising more? Which one? Well, your, your uh, paper SPA, that you put out. Uh, yes. Watch phonetic alphabet. Um, 
you can put it out there. It's on Ron's. Mm-hmm. Also on Dave Politi's website. It's out there. Um, but again, it needs to be uh, revised again. Okay. But means, it's, that's, it's a public domain. Okay. I didn't publish it to get any kind of a academic notoriety or anything. I'm just doing this mm-hmm. because I don't know if there's anybody else out there willing to do it. And okay. that's it. All right. And again, this video will be available. I'm going to uh, give Ron a copy of it. It's going to be up on my website. I'll give a copy to you too, uh, Scott. Um, it'll be a little harder to get to you, but if you want it, it'll be available. I think there's a lot of good information here. And um, any last words from you too? Thank you, Toby. Yeah. Thank you, Toby. You're, you're you. a good man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Charlie Brown. All right, you you heard it from Ron Moorhead. I am a good man. There is no changing your opinion of me from here on out. So no matter what you've heard, it has been written in stone. Okay, thanks, guys, for doing all that. I was blown away. We could have gone for four or five hours. We did three hours solid, and here it is, all in the record. So no going back now. And again, that is the Sasquatch Phonetic Alphabet. Be on the lookout for it. I am going to be posting it up like crazy. And uh, hey, if you think you can add to it, you can do better. Uh, There's some revision that uh, you see with whatever expertise you have. Uh, Let me know. Let Scott know. Let Ron know. Let's uh, let's add to it. Right now, Ron's the one. He's He's the guy that's holding the mantle here for the sounds. And I think that could change quickly with just an email. The next bit of business we need to get to is regarding YouTube and how to get you more involved with it. Well, first of all, I need to take ownership of the fact that content has been lacking somewhat. Uh, For the most part, it's a place for podcast, archive podcast to, to stream. But I want to put more live contact up there, content and contact. And the best way to do it is to involve you. So... What if we have you choose an adventure with me? Something I'm calling Strange Browses. And on these strange browses that I will be taking, you'll be able to vote on where I go. There'll be one of two locations, at least once a month, where you're going to send me. And in these locations, you'll be able to decide what I bring along. It's sounding more and more like a video game, isn't it? That's the point. I'll be your avatar at least for 30 minutes, maybe 60 minutes, in these darkened locations, rolling audio, rolling film, one of the two, and then we'll air it. I'm telling you, the places that we're looking at right now, as far as names are concerned, (laughs) um, I don't want to give too much away. One has the name Starvation in it, and I've spoken a little bit about a place with the name Starvation in it. So we're going to a cemetery associated with the word starvation. Can you imagine what kind of headstones exist there? It's an off-trail cemetery that nobody really knows about. So that's the first one. And the second place that you could possibly send me is deep in the woods, real deep in the woods, at a place called Sorcerer's Hollow. So one of those two locations. And there will be a poll. You can vote... And whoever gets the most votes, whatever location gets the most votes, whatever items get the most votes to bring along with me will be 
how we do this. Film, audio, gear, tech gadgets, those kind of things. Um, activities that I do in there. There'll all be something that we can vote on together. And a date will be decided upon, a location will be decided upon, and rain or shine at the witching hour, which in my case, it's going to be after 11 o'clock, okay? I'm not going to go in. I hope I don't have to go in at 3 in the morning. But if I have to, maybe that will be part of it. Um, so, I guess this tells you what I uh, am willing to do to get you to subscribe. And I hope you do it. Strange Brow Radio. Type that into YouTube. Subscribe. Share it. The first episode, the first polling is going to be uh, hopefully before the 3rd of May. And from there on, once a month, we'll be doing this. And if I can get Alex, Alex Whitcomb, are you listening? There's some crazy places we could send you. <laughs> uh, so, these are all legal locations, by the way. Even in quarantine, do not report me. I'm doing nothing illegal. Come on. Relax, people. Relax. Thanks for listening, subscribing, all that good stuff. And I will see you in the trees. Mm-hmm.